sinfully ghoulish greetings to each of you lovely phantoms and vamps. I'm your host, Tessa Morrow, and those cool tunes are courtesy of the awesome Bobby Mackey. Thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers podcast part of your day. <laughs> I got you there, huh? You weren't expecting that monster voice right there. <laughs> Ford's Theater. For centuries... It's been a place that many have considered to be cursed. The original building was constructed in 1833, and it was used for a house of worship. The church folks needed a bigger area, and so in 1861, they moved to a newly built location that can better accommodate their ever-expanding large group. John Ford buys the former church, and he works hard day and night at renovating it into a theater. As renovation is completed, something horrible happens. A fire engulfs the newly renovated theater. It's rough. It's tough. It destroys much of it. Ford has to rebuild. People flock to it like a moth to a flame, though, when it is finally complete for the second time. And if you're in Washington, D.C. and an avid theater goer, baby, this is the place to go to. Seriously. Picture it. The year is 1865. The 14th day of April. America's 16th president, President Abraham Lincoln and his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, are at Ford's Theater with their two dear friends, newly engaged couple, American socialite, Clara Hamilton Harris, and diplomat and military officer Henry Reed Rathbone. They are happy. They are in the presence of good company and doing something that they all enjoy thoroughly. Watching live theater. The showing that particular night is of Our American Cousin. It was a good day. Literally, folks, it was Good Friday. This is not Lincoln's first time in the theater. He has been there many of times. In fact, this was his 12th visit. While it wasn't his first, sadly, it will be his last. In the middle of the show, a known stage actor named John Wilkes Booth, who had performed here at Ford's Theater several times upon several other places, and who came from a family of extremely talented and well-respected actors, and who was good friends with the Ford brothers. He sneaks up behind the president, who is rather intent and relaxed in his upholstered rocking chair. Booth, sneaky like a cat stalking its prey, Derringer in hand, A grimaced look on his face. His heart is filled with anger and hate, and he is on a deadly mission. He aims that derringer to the back of the unsuspecting Lincoln's head and fires. As this happens, Henry Rathbone jumps into action and tries to stop the assassin as he escapes. This results in him getting stabbed himself and getting seriously wounded. Booth makes a hasty escape by jumping from the viewing box and hits the stage hard below. His ankle, well, that's sprained while doing this, but it doesn't stop him in the slightest. He yells, Six Semper Tyrannus! Probably butchered that, my bad. A short version of the Latin phrase, Six Semper Evelo Mortem Tyrannus, meaning this 
always, I bring death to tyrants. Gravely injured, Lincoln is carried to the Peterson House across the street from Ford's Theater. And it is here at the Peterson House that they work throughout the night, desperately trying to save President Lincoln's life. But to no avail. At 7.22 a.m. on April 15, 1865, at the age of only 56 years old, Abraham Lincoln dies due to external and internal hemorrhaging. And it is at that moment that he becomes the first president to become assassinated. So we know that Lincoln dies from his wounds, of course. Mary Todd, she's now a widow. But what happened to the other people in that theater box? The family friends of Lincoln's, Henry and Clara. As mentioned earlier, Henry is seriously injured when trying to apprehend the madman that is John Wilkes Booth. He is never the same after that dreadful day. He becomes unraveled and quite mentally unstable. Him and Clara, they met as children. Clara's father marries Henry's mother, both losing the loved ones. Both lost their husband and wife earlier on. Yes, folks, that means that Clara and Henry are indeed step-siblings. But that doesn't stop them from falling in love getting married, and having children of their own. After his friend's assassination, the brutal murder stays in his mind, never far away, lingering there. He is indeed a changed man and not for the better. He gets angry, super easy, and has a horrible, disgusting, dirty temper. He becomes violent in a heartbeat, and one day, In 1883, he is attacking his children when Clara steps in and defends them. Like a mama bear, she is in the fight for her life and for her children's as well. And she will fight to the death. He shoots her and stabs her. He then tries to kill himself but survives. Clara does not. He is committed to an insane asylum where he is confined until his own death in 1911. In reality, Henry Rathbone and Clara Harris weren't even supposed to be there that fateful night. Originally, Lincoln had invited his good friend, Ulysses Grant, and his wife, Julia. They had declined, however, as they had plans, traveling to Burlington, New Jersey, to celebrate the end of the Civil War. It makes me wonder if Grant was there, maybe the outcome would have been different, as he was a war hero and... Guess what? He was always armed. Like, always. Probably went to bed with that bad boy. Mary Todd Lincoln, newly widowed, but she is no stranger to losing a loved one. They lose a son prior to the assassination and one after as well. Earlier in 2020, I believe in January, I actually released an episode titled Morning Lincoln, where I discuss his premonition, his life, and his doppelganger. Definitely want to check out. After the love of her life is brutally taken away from her, she is in constant mourning, always wearing black. Her son, her surviving son, called them her widow weeds. Like Henry Rathbone, this event traumatized her and changed Mary's life forever. Her surviving son, Robert, will send her to a mental hospital. Four days after the assassination, authorities start to place their suspicion upon Ford and his two brothers. They are arrested in Baltimore, 
39 days later, they are released from their jail cells and are free men. Ford is paid $88,000 for Ford's theater. This was in 1865, guys, so today that $88,000 is well over $1,430,010. Understandably so, Ford was insulted and was bitter for the treatment that his brothers and him received. Being arrested for the president's murder? How insulting is that? Ridiculous. He loved his theater so much and worked so hard on it, twice, remember, because of the fire. He would never flush his dreams in business down the toilet by committing such a heinous act. And remember, this was Lincoln's 12th time coming. I don't know John Ford personally, but if that were me, that would be an honor that well-known people such as, uh, hello, the president, comes over and visits often. No way Ford would do this. After the assassination, Ford's theater will not see another live production on its famed stage for more than 103 years. Ouch. Things start to change and quick. Soon the United States Army swipes in and takes control of the building, uses it as offices for the War Department clerks, and also where they store records for the Department of War. The Peterson House, where Lincoln drew his last breath, was purchased by the United States government. They called this house the house where Lincoln died. This will be the first federal government purchase of a historical home. Before I get to the next Ford's Theater disaster. I want to mention that when it comes to Lincoln, there were earlier attempts by Booth and his clan to take down the 16th president, among others as well, including Vice President Andrew Johnson, whose would-be killer lost his nerve, and Secretary of State William Seward. And if I'm not wrong in this, I believe that William Seward was actually there the night of the assassination as well. A while before his death, there was actually a plot to kidnap Honest Abe as he left a play from Campbell Military Hospital. But guess what? That was foiled when the plans were changed and he did not go. Instead of the military hospital, Abe went to a ceremony at the National Hotel. Ironically, at this time, Booth was actually living at the one and only, yeah, you guessed it, folks, the National Hotel. And he would have most likely been there if he wasn't stocking the hospital grounds like some weirdo. As we know, Booth escaped that day, but luckily he was taken out and killed 12 days later. As for his compadres, his fellow conspirators, David Harold, Lewis Powell, Georgia Bent, and Mary Surratt, they would all be executed by hanging. Mary would become the first woman to be executed by the United States federal government. As mentioned in the morning Lincoln episode, he indeed did have a premonition of his death three days before assassination. And I won't read his long quote because I did that already in that episode, but I will quickly sum it up. He sees a corpse wrapped in a funeral vestments being guarded by soldiers, people everywhere mourning and crying. He asks a guard who is dead, and they reply, the president, he was killed by an assassin. Three days later, he would be dead. Now, fast forward 28 years. The year is 1893. The theater turned warehouse turned office building is still standing, serving a different purpose. It's the ninth day of June. 
things, well, they start out normal enough. The man, he sits in his office. He just finished one project and is thinking of the next. He looks at the newspaper that's messily taking over one side of his desk. (sighs) He sighs as he sees the headliner. A murder trial taking place, that of Lizzie Borden. He shakes his head. A woman doing that? No way. He moves in his chair and makes a creak-like sound. He stops, but the sound is still being heard. He stands up and listens. The sound gets louder, then an earth-shattering sound deafens his ears. The collapse in the building will claim the lives of 22 people and injuring well over 100. Hundreds of records and pension division clerks, many who are Civil War vets, are in their offices. It's just another day. Nothing stands out. No red flags, no alarms. The talk around the office is how a young woman can axe to death her father and stepmother, as Lizzie Borden is dominating the news nationwide. At 9.30 a.m., a rumble like an earthquake was felt throughout the building. To several, especially in close range, it felt rather like an explosion. One of the clerks, a Robert Walker, looks up in horror as he is faced with a massive wood beam and bricks mixed with mortar crashing violently down through the first floor ceiling. A chasm was created from the first to the third floors by the collapse. Robert describes his harrowing experience. I turned and as I was going over the desk behind me, I was buried. I had no idea how long I was actually there. I had given up all hope of getting out. The weight was crushing the life out of me, and the mortar and dirt was smothering me. That's just one scary account. Several others were fighting for their lives as well. A fellow clerk, a man named Joseph Fott, was at his first floor desk when the ceiling directly above his head was supported by a row of posts, which basically prevented it from collapsing on top of him. He was completely covered in dust, though, as were his co-workers. Several of them make the journey, crawling to the front of the historical building, find a small window, kick it out, breaking the glass, and they manage to squeeze through the tiny space and make their escape. Now, Obviously, depending where you were in the building at the time of the collapse occurred, the escape plan or route may be different. While Joseph fought, crawled through a window, three men saved themselves by jumping into a large vault. It was a whole other battle on the upper floor. Survivors described it as a pit of chaos. People were running and screaming and crying. And for those who were too terrified to scream... They heard nothing but the deafening anguish screams from their friends and fellow co-workers. Witnesses and survivors claim that the Civil War vets were the worst. They were the wildest. They had to be contained and held on to so they would not jump out the windows to what certainly would have been their deaths. Poor things, hearing those explosions and the screams, I mean, I'm sure it just brought them right back to being in the Civil War just in battle and the fight for their lives. 
And it's true, they are in a battle and in the fight for their lives. Dust littered the air. It was hard to see. You could hardly breathe. From the street, a man named Basil Lockwood spots distressed federal workers waving their arms out the window on the third floor at the rear of the building. The teenager, he jumps into action and climbs a nearby telephone pole where he leashes up a small ladder and thereby creating an escape route for the people. Between 15 to 20, if not more, got out that day because of Basil Lockwood. His heroic actions would not be forgotten. A month later, after some time to recover and what have you, some of the surviving clerks invite him into their new offices and gift him with a gorgeous gold watch. It's inscribed with the words, presented to Basil Lockwood by the clerks in the record and pension division in recognition of his heroic conduct in the Ford's Theater disaster of June 9, 1893. One clerk, William Mellick, for years, he considered the building unsafe. He knew that someday it was going to fall to the ground. He waited. He did not want it to happen, of course, but he was a cautious man, and he knew that it was just a matter of time. That building did not have good bones, or at least not anymore. That horrible day, William was one of the very first people out. He had long in advance come up with an escape plan, and he used it, and it saved his life. While inside the now-collapsed building is a living hell, outside is no better, folks. Friends and families have now gathered, and you can hear agonizing screams and moans littering the air, crying uncontrollably over the bodies. Under one tree alone, seven bodies laid. Every single hospital is packed with people. Men wept like children. Women fainted. Ambulances, they were arriving so quickly and leaving just as fast, taking away the injured and the dead. The city morgue, a smaller morgue, was the scene of a scary movie. The floor littered with pools of blood, broken legs and arms and crushed skulls were strewn about. The morgue wasn't made or ready for something like this. They literally had one autopsy table and one ice chest freezer. Houses, businesses, and drugstores, you name it, they changed them to makeshift hospitals. It was a nightmare. Bodies were everywhere. One reporter wrote this about the disaster. That anyone should have escaped with his life seems the work of a miracle. As victims were brought forth, they presented a spectacle that no one seeing it will ever forget. In many cases, the semblance of humanity was gone. It seemed as though the helpers were carrying out mere bags of matter, smeared all over with blood, filthy with dirt, dirt ground into them, and blood on their faces. In one case, that was a happy ending. A man is taken out of the wreckage. They believe he is indeed dead. No signs of life, right? But once in the fresh air, he's miraculously revived. He looks around, he stands up, and guess what? He even walks off on his own accord. Another man who is very near death is placed into an ambulance. He suddenly sits up, asks for some whiskey, which he is given, and then drinks it. <laughs> Word hits the White House, and President Grover Cleveland is saddened to hear of the situation. Relief groups quickly raise $5,000. Today, that's $147,153. Grover himself contributes $100 of his own money 
which today would be $2,943. Investigation into the collapse revealed that they were actually excavating the basement. One of the piers, sadly and unfortunately, gave way. In result, it took over 40 feet from all three floors. Among the dead were war heroes, including Samuel Bands and Benjamin Miller, who had a severe leg wound from the 1864 Battle of Cold Harbor. Heroic veterans Joseph Barker, Gage, George Allen, John Chapin, and Andrew Napoleon Geralt died as well. The government paid each of those families $5,000. Another life claimed is that of George Arnold, known as being, quote, one of the best known and most popular colored men in the city. He climbs out of a third floor window and plunged 40 feet below into the very alley where John Wilkes Booth tethered his horse. The night of Lincoln's assassination. According to a newspaper, the beloved member of the community fell on a covering that was over a door. He sadly slid off that onto the hard cobblestone surface below, hitting his head, which they say smashed like jelly. Many people were affected that day, either by death or injuries, the trauma of it all, or maybe a family member was killed or hurt. June 7th, 1893, two days before the catastrophic event. Veteran John Busis is on top of the world. His daughter just got married. The man, he looks into his daughter's eyes. Sweetheart, I am so proud of you. The young woman smiles. Father and daughter look at one another, smiling ear to ear. Tears of happiness running down their cheeks. They dance, if only the moment could have lasted longer. Two days later, his son and his wife, now widow, have the excruciating task to identify their beloved family member's body. Hero veteran John Busis is dead. Three days after the collapse, the theater's namesake, John Ford, gives this statement. The terms used by many of the press calling the theater a death trap an eggshell, etc., are not to be justified, except under the plea of extravagant expressions springing from great excitement. When the Rue investigation is made, the conclusion now become evident that the catastrophe came solely from undermining the supports of the floors. A few days after the deadly collapse, an elderly man stands before the building. He sadly shakes his head. <sighs> He was there the night Lincoln was assassinated. He remembers it like it was yesterday. He says this about Ford's theater. There's a curse upon the building. Ever since the great Lincoln was stricken down by the cowardly assassin. And he's not the only one to think this location is cursed. It's more than just the sight of an assassination and a deadly collapse. Those two are horrible enough. But think of all the other events. First, the fire in 1862, almost like trying to prevent it from opening as a theater. Then, of course, Lincoln's assassination, which changes many people, including Henry Rathbone, who murders his wife and is sent away to a mental institute. And besides the fact that he married his own stepsister, before the deadly event, he was a normal dude. 
Then, of course, Mary Todd Lincoln. She is sent away to a mental asylum for a while, every day mourning her husband. She's never the same. The collapse, taking many lives down with it, and the theater's namesake and his two brothers wrongfully accused and arrested. So much happening, it's no shocker many believe her to be cursed. Today, on site, there is a Ford Theater Museum. It's beneath the original theater, and it is here that you will find many things, such as Booth Sterringer, that did Lincoln in, Lincoln's coat, Booth's diary, the blood-stained pillow from Honest Abe's deathbed, the original door to Lincoln's theater box, and his beloved rocking chair. Now, of course, because of COVID, they might not even be allowing visitors at the moment. So if you plan to go, please make sure they are indeed open. With a location having so much dark history attached to it, there's no shocker that there are claims that this place is severely haunted. Ford's Theater has many resident spirits, including none other than, hello, Abraham Lincoln. Mary Todd Lincoln, and the actor-turned-murderer John Wilkes Booth. And sadly, it's home to what I believe to be a residual haunting. Many have experienced hearing the sounds of rapid disembodied footsteps rushing to the balcony box. Which is then followed by a gunshot. Immediate screams are heard afterwards. There are a few eyewitnesses who claim to have seen the full-bodied apparition of Mary Todd Lincoln herself leaning over the balcony and pointing at the stage as she cries and screams, He killed the president! Lincoln's apparition has been seen in several locations throughout the theater, several of the times in the very box that he was actually killed in. He's also been seen at different locations besides Ford's Theater altogether. More on that in just a moment. Booth is thought to haunt a specific spot on the stage. Actors that stand left center tend to fill cold spots. And not only that, but at times becoming physically ill, suddenly getting nauseous, stuttering and forgetting lines, uncontrollable trembling and shaking as well. Booth's apparition has also been seen running across the stage, making his escape. A shadowy figure wearing a stovepipe hat has been seen several times walking through the area. Besides the three known resident spirits, some believe that the spirits of those lost in the collapse roam here as well. A little over a mile away from the cursed theater is the White House. And it is here that Lincoln's apparition has been seen as well. Throughout the years and decades, many people, several well-known people, have bumped into Lincoln's ghost. Eleanor Roosevelt, she was one of the very first people to actually feel, not see, mind you, but feel the late president's presence. The family dog Fala felt it too. She would go to the wall and just start barking and she act erratically and just not like herself. The first documented sighting of Lincoln himself comes from Grace Coolidge. She saw his spirit standing at a window in the yellow oval room. One funny experience comes from Winston Churchill and I absolutely love this story. He was visiting his friend Teddy Roosevelt 
and was staying in Lincoln's room. He was enjoying himself a nice hot bath when he decided he wanted a cigar. So he stands up to go get one. Soap falling off his naked body as he enters the room, still naked, mind you, he sees the late president's apparition. Churchill, quick on his feet, says, Good evening, Mr. President. You seem to have caught me at a disadvantage. Lincoln smiles and vanishes before the very shocked Churchill's eyes. Others who have seen Lincoln at the White House include Reagan's daughter, Maureen, that was in the 80s, of course, Dwight Eisenhower's press secretary, James Haggerty, and Liz Carpenter felt his presence several times. Harry Truman was once staying in the Lincoln room when he was suddenly awakened in the dead of night by loud knocks at the door. His daughter, Margaret, stayed in there from time to time as well, and she too was heard a specter rapping at the door. Rap a tap tap. Both believed it to be Lincoln. Disembodied footsteps are heard in the room as well. Eleanor Roosevelt's secretary saw Lincoln pulling at his boots. She yelled when the apparition met her eyes, and she ran out quickly afterwards. And it was not just the secretary, but many staff of Roosevelt's claimed to see his spirit. One day, their personal valet ran screaming from the White House, yelling that he just saw Honest Abe's ghost. (laughs) And I want to end this episode with a beautiful saying by none other than Lincoln himself, and I just absolutely love it. And it is, we can complain because rose bushes have thorns or rejoice because thorn bushes have roses. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Yes! Listen to the others, you guys. They are equally awesome. Have you not heard every single one yet? No need to cry, my friends. Just head on over to any of the podcast platforms and you can binge listen to your heart's content, such as Player FM, Podbean, Spotify, Podcast Republic, Apple Podcast, Overcast, CastBox, wherever you may roam to listen to your other spooky, phantomly amazing podcast, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcast lurking in the background. This week's special city shoutouts go to Surat, India, Kihei, Hawaii, Copperas Cove, Texas, Clear Lake, California, and Knoxville, Tennessee. Thank you so much, you guys, for stopping and taking a listen, making me part of your day. I hope you enjoyed it. Do you have a spooky idea for an episode? Let me know. I'm open to suggestions and absolutely love them. Paranormal.prowlers.podcast at gmail.com. See you next week.